0: This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. I am
1: Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima.
0: And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care.
1: Except for Pete Buttigieg.
0: Oh, poor Pete.
1: (laughs) Mostly because I just never want to talk about him again.
0: In the last hurrah. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I feel like co-opting Medicare for All language became a favorite pastime of America in the last two years. Pete was a little late to the party, but he he brought it hard.
1: Oh, yeah. And if you can believe it, the hot takes on Twitter were that Medicare for All Who Want It was much better than a public option.
0: Oh, yeah. Except it's <laughs> the same thing with a different name. <laughs> uh, so, um, Stephanie, we're going to start off in South Carolina like much of the country did mm-hmm. this past week. Um, and... Uh, Let's look first at the exit polling before we get into all the politics and stuff. So NBC exit polling, this is the one we've mostly been using on Medicare for All, even though their Medicare for All question sucks, found uh, 50% support for Medicare for All among South Carolina Democratic voters. Um, Their headline was Medicare for All goes four for four in primary contests so (laughs) far, because we have cleaned up majorities in every single state where we've been voting so far. Um, And there was an interesting uh, Washington Post exit poll, uh, similar numbers, but they also tracked who voted for which candidate and crossed that with, you know, uh, Medicare for all support. And they found among Medicare for all supporters, Biden won by 15 percent, which is very interesting.
1: Yeah. So Joe Biden won his first so far and only primary Mm -hmm. with the help of medicare for all voters
0: yeah can you show us some love (laughs) (laughs) we just got him his first win in three presidential Uh runs uh damn
1: but that's great because you know well (laughs) worst case scenario joe biden becomes president he has an army of medicare for all supporters who got him there so
0: i don't want to call that a worst case scenario
1: there well, are no, no, no. potentially there are...
0: worse worse Can it, is case scenarios
1: well, <laughs> is. that is true. Um, I think it is also interesting that the person who came in second place after, you know Joe Biden, who came in first place with all with all the support of Medicare for all voters, was Bernie Sanders, who basically mm. is the Medicare for all candidate. And then after that, nobody else got any delegates. So Medicare for all. One. Cleans up in South
0: Carolina. Absolutely. Um, Even though, you know, the numbers were not quite as high, just the total numbers as the preceding states. Um, And it's hard to know exactly what was going on there without kind of breaking down, you know, the demographics of who was supporting Medicare for all and who wasn't. Um, But we do know that um, our movement has a harder time in the South than much of the rest of the country, which is, I think, similar to most social justice movements and economic justice movements.
1: So I would say that these are pretty good numbers, uh, despite the fact that our favorite corporate front group, the Partnership for America's uh-huh. Healthcare Future, um, I'm sorry that you have to hear about them again, uh, spent 200,000 on ads uh, running in Charlotte and Columbia in the week leading up to the primary. For this particular ad blitz, they developed two new ads for the campaign called Priorities and Opposite. Mm-hmm. Why did they go to all the trouble of making new ads instead of just using their old ones
0: well i think their old ads were missing one crucial element for south carolina any black people (laughs) (laughs) so they had to come up devise two new ads uh these both basically both of these are feature exclusively black women uh trying to knock medicare for all and the public option equally um and uh you know, the, the talking points are very similar. This is why we're kind of not playing the audio again. It's like, you know, one one size fits all, government takeover of your health care, blah, 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 blah. Um, but they did add in some new, like, huge lies in one of their ads. Um, they, have an, they have one section of their ad called Priorities that says uh, Medicare for All is going to increase new taxes by $32 trillion and lead to higher premiums.
1: Whoa, that is a <laughs> catastrophic outcome.
0: That's right. This is just
1: getting hysterical.
0: The uh, the program that's going to eliminate your premiums is also going to increase your premiums. <laughs>
1: So fortunately, there are also uh, groups fighting on the other side of this campaign. Um, the Deb Jones Douglas Institute um, led the, this grassroots campaign in the state of South Carolina, fighting for Medicare for all. Uh, they collected pledges, um, encouraged people to vote only for Medicare for all candidates, and also have been building organizing infrastructure of uh, Medicare for all ambassadors across the state, including local mayors and city councilors to organize uh, educational events. Mm -hmm. Uh, So over the past couple of months, they gathered more than 10,000 pledges in the state of South Carolina Mm -hmm. and spoke with tens of thousands more voters. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though the elections are over, they're going to keep organizing in the state.
0: Yeah, this is awesome. And, you know, we've said a bunch of times and we know, obviously, we're not going to outspend our opposition. Um, Medicare for All movement is not going to, like, drop more dollars than the health insurance industry, plus the hospital industry, plus pharmaceutical industry. Um, it's just not going to happen, but you can see that those industries have no grassroots operation. Um, they don't have any on the ground field campaign. All they can do is throw ad camp ads at you, um, both in social media and on TV. Um, and I think, you know, if I have to ask, I don't know exactly how many ads, $200,000 by buys, uh, made probably fewer during a presidential campaign during a primary state. Um, but with is is that moving people more two hundred thousand dollars in ad spending than an army of Medicare for all activists going out and having one-on one conversations with tens of thousands of people? Um, I'm pretty sure that our grand, ground game was like stronger in this case, in this state uh, than the ad spending. Um, and this was happening in the South.
1: Yeah, we're seeing lots of parallels, I think, with um, the presidential election or the Democratic primary mm-hmm. uh, in terms of billionaires spending right. so yep. much money mm-hmm. on ads that aren't didn't get them any delegates mm-hmm. in South Carolina. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, having a huge grassroots army mm-hmm. and winning in a place that he, or not winning, but getting a pretty fair share of the vote in mm-hmm. a place he wasn't really expected to do well in.
0: hmm yeah, and I think that um, a- another important feature of this one, um, the president of the South Carolina AFL-CIO, so this is the labor federation for the whole state that includes all the labor unions, wrote an op-ed in the lead up to the um, to the lead up to the vote in the Charleston Chronicle. Um, Basically, saying, you know, the South Carolina AFL has stood for Medicare for all for a long, long time. Uh, This is Charles Brave. He wrote, uh, we know that the present system of employer provided health care cannot be sustained. We need to take healthcare off the bargaining table, and Medicare for All will do that by severing the tie between access to healthcare and our jobs. That will be an important part of strengthening the labor movement, and will help m- make all workers and their families families live more stable and secure. Um, end quote. Now this is awesome uh, because we just ca- came off the heels of what happened in Nevada, uh, where you know the culinary union kind of went rogue, and I would remind folks. The Nevada AFL-CIO is also supportive of Medicare for All, which means the, the labor movement as a whole in Nevada has voted on this, has supported Medicare for All. Um, and I think we've learned to get out ahead of this a little bit with the labor movement. Um, so there's not like one union who the press can all cover it and be like, oh, man, this is a, a problem now for the Medicare for all movement.
1: Yeah. And this shift in labor support for Medicare for all has been mm-hmm. across the country, totally a rank and file uh, initiative that has mm-hmm. made this this possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Stephanie, I'm, I wanted to ask you more about the. Um, The importance of like Medicare for all organizing in the South, Um, because like, you know, one of the one of my things that I take out of this, uh, this primary more so than the other ones is that, um, you know, we don't have the same social justice infrastructure in the South than we do in some other states. Um, And I think a lot of times the more uh, sort of traditional, more conservative institutions have more power politically in the South. So, I mean, you're from Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what does it mean uh, to be sort of making some breakthrough, really organizing breakthroughs in the South and getting traction?
1: Yeah, I love to see that people are organizing around uh, a very progressive cause like Medicare for all in the South. This isn't something that we would have seen, I think, like 10 years ago. Um, I think that the political reality that Southerners face, it's a little bit difficult for people mm-hmm. who have lived in the North or in more leftist areas of the country to really understand mm-hmm. um, what it's like to live in the South. Um, and I think that m- it makes it very difficult to be an unapologetic Medicare for All supporter, not just because of like the way that other people will feel about it if you you know, come out as being Medicare for All, but also it just feels so much less likely to happen when, you know, your institutions at every level of government are Republican-led and very conservative. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by having these sort of groundbreaking organizers coming out and paving a way uh, for Medicare for All, I think it's really helping to give people the permission to rally behind a progressive cause, even Mm. when the stakes feel really against you in a red state.
0: Right. And this is a state that has not expanded Medicaid. This is one of the few remaining that has not expanded Medicaid. Um, And to see that level of sort of support and fight for Medicare for All is awesome, because it's like, you know, uh, yes, we need to do the incremental things, but it's not going to be enough to really give us healthcare security. Or financial security.
1: Yeah. And a lot of so, the activism around health care in the South is tied up around expanding Medicaid. Right. So um, the fact that we have people who are also willing to come out for Medicare for all when, you know, a an, an really urgent feeling campaign like the Medicaid campaign is happening is also it's so important. It's really great.
0: Yeah. And quick footnote, this campaign was run by South Carolinians <laughs> to <laughs> South Carolinians. Right. The campaign is going to continue after the election. So this was not like a national organization parachuting in organizers to South Carolina. So big props to deb jones douglas institute um so i think moving from um moving from that realm to the other big news of the week um shall we talk about coronavirus yes. you know we had to do it it's uh ben should
1: i get the coronavirus
0: should you get the what i don't know what are the plus and minuses
1: Ugh, not having to come into work
0: oh that's true mm-hmm. i would not want you in work <laughs> <laughs> well the terrible thing about our job though is even when you're sick as shit It's so easy to work from home doing our job. We have like a national organizing job. So we have a lot of phone calls, a lot of email. I've had so few sick breaks.
1: Same, same. But maybe if we get the coronavirus, we won't even be able to look at our computers.
0: We'll be quarantined from our laptops. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... There was a, the House Ways and Means Committee had a hearing on the coronavirus. Why is that important? Well, because the Trump administration is taking some of the funds from lots of other public health programs that are actually very, very important.
1: I'm sure they're not important.
0: To pay for coronavirus uh, preparedness. So Alex Azar, the um, head of health and human services, was brought before the House uh, Ways and Means Committee and asked this important question about coronavirus, about only coronavirus related issues secretary Azar can you talk about the financial impact for Medicare for all and what kind of impact it has potentially on seniors and middle-class Americans that I serve in uh, Indiana Second District it would be absolutely devastating we've got 180 million Americans who get their insurance through their employer or their more importantly their union their insurance would be taken away collective bargaining rights that they have given up in exchange for insurance would be taken away without compensation in wages for our 60 million million seniors in Medicare, a third of them depend on private insurance, Medicare Advantage, the ever more popular private option with added, often dental, vision benefits and pharmacy benefits for them, taken away as part of this. It would be devastating for America's seniors. What the fuck?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Ben, there's never not a good time to trash Medicare for all.
0: Oh, my God.
1: In the middle of an impending pandemic. Let's let's take a Medicare for all roast break.
0: Yeah. And I'm no expert. But when you give a fully scripted answer where you hit like seven to eight talking points, I'm pretty sure you've been prepped in advance that you're going to get this question and you've been given the talking points to answer.
1: I'm sure this has nothing to do with the elections.
0: No, no, no. They're not. Don't have an eye towards the election cycle at all. They're just (laughs) mostly really concerned about this coronavirus slash Medicare for all epidemic. All right. So let's let's get to the quote, where our actually actually answers a question about um, developing a vaccine for coronavirus. And this gets at the intersectionality of, of access to health care and uh, public health. We affirm then you're saying it will for sure be affordable for anyone who needs it. I'm saying we would we would want to ensure that we work to make it affordable, but we can't control that price because we need the private sector to invest. The
1: priorities yeah, to get yeah, vaccines and therapeutics. Price expired, controls won't get us
0: there. Mr. Secretary, thank you. <laughs> Gentlemen, time has expired. Stop talking. Stop talking.
1: <laughs> I don't know. If the government can't address global pandemics, then what exactly is it here for? Oh,
0: my God. I cannot. This is... The head of Health and Human Services. Um, yeah. He basically cares more about healthcare capitalists than he does about actual <laughs> yeah. patients. Um,
1: we are in sort of a hostage situation, you know, oh my God, uh, yeah. that that we're all in because our politicians are uh, deferent to capitalism. Like, sorry, some people won't get this vaccine because we have a system that distributes life savi- saving resources, you know. By wealth status.
0: Right. And of course, this is happening in a lot of other areas, but it's particularly, I think, um, shocking and striking when you see something that the, the fewer people who can access this, the worse it's going to hit our whole country. Um, and uh, I think, you know, partly also what he was saying uh, reminded me that, um, you know, most new medicines that are developed, and I don't know that developing a vaccine based on an identified thing takes a lot of innovation, but most, most new innovative pharmaceuticals are actually developed with federal funding, with government funding from the National Institutes of Health. They tend to give grants to universities who do the hard work. And then the universities, when they develop something important, then sell the patent rights to a pharmaceutical company that then screws us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. On its face, the argument he's making is wrong. Right. That actually, it's it's not even just a moral question. It's... It is uh, a matter of who is paying for this kind of research, even today.
0: We as taxpayers are paying to screw ourselves, (laughs) in the end, by way of pharmaceutical companies. Um, And obviously, this whole line about needing to prop up pharmaceutical companies with huge profits so that they can develop new medicines is total bullshit. I mean, um, it's mostly the government developing new medicines. And when they do develop new medicines, we can't even afford them.
1: Yeah. And it just makes such a good case also for, and this is outside of the purview of Medicare for All, but of course, the National of the pharmaceutical industry as well would be a huge boon to public health and everything that doesn't necessarily uh, generate profits but is excellent for for you know the low cost but really life saving. Um, medicines and treatments that that we need to stay healthy
0: yeah and a lot of um in some of the scandinavian countries the pharmacy chains not the pharmaceutical manufacturers but the pharmacy retail chains are are nationalized they're 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 publicly owned um i know because sweden sweden swedish pharmacies only during the holidays, like around Christmas time, sell a mustard. It's like the best mustard you've ever had and it's a proprietary government recipe. (laughs) This is what socialism is actually like. Amazing mustard during the holidays. (laughs) I used to make my my Swedish friends bring it back to me every holiday. Um, So we were not the only ones uh, to make this connection between coronavirus and Medicare for all. Um, Lots of folks um, sort of picked this up, including Bernie Sanders, including Alexander Andrea Ocasio-Cortez, who tweeted about it. She said, quote, I used to work in the food industry. I can't tell you how many times the people who handle your food who are already overworked and underpaid show up sick to work because our country refuses to guarantee health care or paid sick leave. We need Hashtag Medicare for all. Agree or disagree, Stephanie?
1: Oh, man. <laughs> Personal story, and I'm sorry I'm about to horrify all of you. Uh, I used to work at a very busy like breakfast, brunch place, and I was coming down with something that I could feel was just not a common cold mm-hmm. or flu or whatever um and i tried to call in sick but um my boss told me that if i didn't come in that day it was saturday it was brunch you know it's crazy busy mm-hmm. that i would just be fired and not to bother coming in at all oh, what a nice so, dude so <laughs> it was a woman actually girl boss you know yeah um <clears throat> So I I went in and I served the whole day from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., the end of the the, uh, shift. Um, I think both days and then later that week I ended up in the ER and found out that I had had mononucleosis and strep throat and my (laughs) body was just breaking down Um, and that basically I had served an entire weekend of people with two extremely contagious infectious diseases. I
0: thought the end of that story was going to be you were the origin of the coronavirus.
1: (laughs) Well, I hope that I uh, at uh, least infected some capitalists that day.
0: Who was dining at that that place? yeah, and, it, and I think this also speaks to it. I mean, obviously, the healthcare system is fucked up, but it's also all the other things we're bad at in the United States, like paid sick leave, no empowerment for workers. I mean, if you were unionized, that would have never happened. Yeah. Um, if there were laws protecting your rights as a worker, then that would have never happened either. So um, beyond... Um, the uh, sort of smart takes from folks like AOC. Um, there's a good article also in the Washington Post by Helene Olin uh, making the connection that basically there's no way you can um, systematically address uh, a virus outbreak if people can't afford to see their doctor or, or if they feel symptoms, get sick, and are afraid to go in um, just because of the cost. Um, we also had a uh, a right-wing take that was interesting, from Sally Pipes, who wrote in Fox News that she said single payer countries do worse at containing viruses. Oh, can if you had to guess how you would make that argument, how would you even start?
1: <laughs> You've got me there, Ben.
0: <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some some Pipes knowledge right here. Um, she says, though the pathogen has reached our shores, our is is Americans, by the way. US health officials have told Americans they don't need to worry. That's not an ironic quote. She thinks we actually don't need to worry because we're a capitalist American healthcare system.
1: I think the border will work.
0: Yes, (laughs) I'm drifting from the quote here. It says, countries with single payer healthcare may have a more difficult time. In the not too distant past, Canada and the United Kingdom have struggled to handle outbreaks of everything from SARS to the seasonal flu. That's largely because these countries' government-run, Medicare-for-all-style systems lack enough healthcare personnel, hospital beds, and other resources to meet the needs of their populations, even in good times. A public health threat like a pandemic can stretch single-payer healthcare to its breaking point. Mm-hmm. You lived in a couple of single-payer systems. Were you constantly sick with pandemics and epidemics?
1: <laughs> uh, fortunate, no, I wasn't. And uh, fortunately, we also have the o- OECD to call bullshit on this.
0: Yeah. Oh, this is total bullshit. So um, I got really worked up. I, don't, I shouldn't even read these things. Um, I was like, what lack of healthcare resources? So I, I looked up the OECD data on how many hospital beds we have per per person um, or per 1,000 person compared to other countries. And I also looked up how many physicians we have. And guess what? We suck at both. (laughs) (laughs) So we are in the bottom one-fourth to one-third of all the countries that the OECD tracks in hospital beds per 1,000 people and in physicians per 1,000 people. Um, And basically we're down there with the developing countries that they track with this. So for hospital beds, um, we are – 2.8 hospital beds per 1,000 people. Um, And I would like to compare that with Japan, where you lived. How many would you guess Japan has?
1: A lot more. They oh, yes. love being in the hospital for the Japanese. So
0: Japan has 13.1 oh. hospital beds per 1,000 people. That's like four to five times as much mm. as the U.S. There are
1: a lot of old people in Japan.
0: And Germany is at four to five times as many ah. old people. <laughs> and that's only because they live longer because they have a universal health care right. system. <laughs> um, Germany has eight uh, hospital beds per 1,000 people. Austria has 7.4. France has six. Um, there are 30 countries out of the 42 they track that are above us in the United States. And the ones that are below us include India, Indonesia, Costa Rica, Colombia, Chile, and mostly developing nations. Um, Although I do note that the other English-speaking countries that have single-payer, like Canada and the UK, which are the only two she references, are also lower-level hospital beds like us. Mm -hmm. Um, Just goes to show that, you know, Having a single payer system doesn't determine everything, right? So you you then still have to decide uh, where you're investing your money as a single payer country. Also, physicians, we are also in the lowest amongst all the countries that were physicians per 1,000 residents, uh, lowest among almost all the countries. We have 2.6 physicians per 1,000 residents. Compare that with Austria with 5.2 twice as many Norway 4.8 Germany 4.3 Sweden 4.1 and so on and so forth it's the same thing as hospitals so Sally Pipes go suck it I just don't understand sometimes I wonder like what would it be like to live in a world without like totally unmoored from facts and reality (laughs) and then I'm like well we could just listen to Trump every day (laughs) I should know by now (laughs) Um,
1: don't have to fantasize about it you can live that reality every day So uh,
0: moving on, you know, we talked last week about this Yale study showing that Medicare for All saves a lot of money um, and saves a lot of lives. Um, and that it kind of you know fell in line with uh, decades of research by dozens and dozens of actuarial studies and economic studies showing how much Medicare for all that we can cover everyone that it costs less, and like we used often like to say, you don't really need to be an economist to know this. Just look at the rest of the world, right? Just look at all the countries that have universal health care. See that they spend less, and it's kind of common sense.
1: The monks are smarter than that.
0: Oh yeah, so they I have was, their data. I was getting to that. Um, so apparently there's been. Uh, you are so much hipper than I am. I'm never on Twitter. I'm barely on social media at all. But you've reported that there is a feeding frenzy attacking the Yale study, trying to discredit it, especially in the Twitterverse by the centrist walks.
1: Yeah, well, I spent years trying to sort of get into Twitter and try to figure out what it was and figure Mm -hmm. out like healthcare now's place in Twitter. And now that I've sort of of got the hang of it, I I cannot wait to delete my account. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so basically the Twitter wonks, the health policy sphere on Twitter, uh, basically just gleefully tore into this uh, Mm -hmm. recent Yale study. So one Kaiser health reporter, Shafali Luthra, wrote a, a PolitiFact article fact-checking Bernie Sanders' statement um, at the South Carolina debate. His statement was, a recent study, and that's referencing the Yale study, said Medicare for all will lower health care costs in this country by $450 billion a year and save the lives of 68,000 people who would otherwise have died. And she rated this mostly false. <laughs> <laughs> um wait didn't
0: he just attribute the claim to a Yale study? How is that false?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Um,
0: Go on, though. (laughs) The study itself. (laughs) The study
1: itself, uh, she decided was wrong, and Mm -hmm. therefore his claim was wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, Defending, this is from the the article, defending his signature health plan, a single-payer system known as Medicare for All that would move all Americans to government-funded coverage, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders argued that the massive health expansion would actually save the system hundreds of billions of dollars. The price tag of Medicare for All has been fierce Debated, And some previous analysis have suggested that the proposal would increase health spending, not decrease it.
0: There's a real academic reference there.
1: Oh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, missing from this takedown is, you know, the 22 other studies uh, that overwhelmingly prove how cost effective Medicare for all would be.
0: Or any analysis of the two studies that have found that it would cost more. Which were both sort of political hit pieces during the 2016 election that were going after dun, 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 Bernie Sanders.
1: I think that's what irritates me the most about um, this debate that happens on Twitter. You know, th- this pretense of academic neutrality. Um, they have no problem uncritically accepting. Um, the authority of the very reputable Urban Institute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, And had the Yale study found the same things as the Urban Institute, then it would have been the very reputable Lancet. Mm -hmm. But instead, uh, favorable single-payer studies are scrutinized to death, while everything else just gets a pass.
0: Yep, I'm sure we're going to see more of this um, as the elections go on. I can't wait to see what comes out during the general elections. <laughs> it's going to be even more batshit crazy. Um, so lastly, we want to get on to the activist section of this. And, um
1: woohoo, well, well, my favorite
0: part. Yes, I mean, we talked a lot about the South Carolina organizing, which was awesome. Um, but we want to talk about two other campaigns, too. We introduced our audience to the uh, Patients Over Profits Pledge campaign um, just a week or two back, which is trying Trying to get candidates across the country, um, both local and, but especially uh, running for Congress, to pledge not to take donations from corporations that are affiliated with this Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, which we reference almost every week because they're spending so much money attacking Medicare for All. Um, and Getting in early on this fight was none other than Stephanie Nakajima, <laughs> uh, working closely with Boston DSA here in Boston. Um, so we have uh, Representative Joe Kennedy is challenging Senator Ed Markey here in Massachusetts. And so you got a chance to sit down with Joe Kennedy at kind of a mixer event and put the pledge to him.
1: Yeah. So last night I attended a meet and greet for Kennedy. Uh, yes. And he's running for U.S. Senate in mass against um,
0: Markey. Ed, yeah. Ed Markey. Ed. Ed
1: Markey. That's right. Um, and I, he actually came and sat down at my table, and uh, we got to ask him on video if he would sign the Patients Over Profits pledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had actually a great conversation about who was included in the pledge. He wanted to know which organizations were involved, and I was able to give him um, the website so that he could go and actually see a list and Mm -hmm. he said he came up to me actually afterwards this this whole encounter was actually filmed um the audio is not podcast worth so we're not (laughs) playing it right now but you can go onto our facebook page and we'll be posting it shortly Mm -hmm. um i'm actually this is something that you're going to hear about on this podcast but not actually uh yet in on social media because we want to give him a little bit of time to look over the pledge and, and just you know, make the right decision to sign it before mm-hmm. we start putting more pressure on him, but essentially he came up to me afterwards and told me that if the pledge is truly, you know, just these uh, entities that are supporting the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, mm-hmm. then he will sign. So I'm awesome. really excited to hopefully get, you know, our first or one of our first um, signees Signees (laughs) of the pledge Um, and I encourage everybody else also Mm -hmm. to start uh asking, talking to their uh, members of Congress and starting to get more signers of this pledge so we can get a little momentum going around this campaign, which I think is going to be so important as we get closer and closer to really winning Medicare for all.
0: Yeah. And I think the you know the process that the the national campaign is going to go through is we're going to first collect petition signatures from folks in their districts, and then we're going to go deliver it to them and ask them. But if your candidate is coming to a public event and you get a chance to talk to them and ask them, just do it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. And this is a tactic that's called bird dogging. Uh, Stephanie, do you want to give a little little plug for our bird dogging sort of materials and
1: stuff? Yes. Mm -hmm. So over the past couple of years, there's been an increase in um, just a grassroots increase of people all over the country bird dogging their candidates to sign on to the Medicare for all bill. And so we actually have a compilation of all the videos um, Mm -hmm. that we are aware of. And if you know of any more, please send them in. Um, We have this compilation on our website. And in addition to that, there's just a whole comprehensive guide to how to how to set up how to organize a bird dogging event how to actually film one and there's also like a one-hour webinar we did with the center for popular democracy um, about bird dogging and when to use it and how to do it and everything so please visit that and you can also sign up to bird dog uh, on the website um, and if you don't want to necessarily do that but you still want to be part of the patients uh, over profits uh, campaign then you can also sign up for that as well
0: Yes, We'll have all those links in the show notes. (laughs) Yes. Um, So also in organizing activist world, we have a municipal resolution that was passed uh, by the city council in New London, Connecticut, in favor of Medicare for All, urging their members of Congress to support uh, the Medicare for All bill and to sign on. Um, Now, this was written up in a couple of reports. The Connecticut Post reports that um, city councillor James Burke, who is one of the city councillors leading this resolution, said there are moral reasons for the federal government to offer health care to residents, but he focused more on the financial reasons, seeing the issue, quote, through the lens of municipalities as employers, um, that cash-strapped municipalities like London could see a net savings of millions of dollars if a Medicare for All bill was passed. And one of, the act- one of our activists in Connecticut, um, who was part of, like, moving this resolution ahead, uh, pointed out, uh, to the paper, she said, the school board last year saw an 11% rise in their healthcare premiums. Whoa. That amounted to over half a million dollars, she said, money that had to be diverted from educational programs.
1: I just don't understand why people aren't riding on the streets al- over this already. Uh, they're riding in New London, Connecticut. So, <laughs>
0: um, and I think, you know, this is something that people don't always think about, like the impact that healthcare has on cities and towns. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, healthcare. You know, health care premiums go up so fast and so high, uh, private premiums, which is what even these public entities have to pay, that it chips into their budget for everything else because their income is not going up by 11 percent every year. Um, they can't increase taxes on residents. They can't increase real estate taxes by like 11 percent each year to pay for their health care, uh, rising health care costs. So what they end up doing is they spend less and less on education and public health and other like crucial things that we really need our local governments to be doing.
1: Yeah, and until last year, this is such a big victory, because until last year, Connecticut had five Democratic reps, and none of them uh, were on Medicare for All. None! Not a single one, (laughs) Um, and that may be because a lot of health insurers are sort of based out of the state, Um, and so all of the reps tend to be accounted for Yeah, I think Aetna
0: is is over there (laughs) up in Connecticut, has their headquarters, maybe Cigna too, yeah.
1: And there was a start of a little bit of change when Johanna Hayes ran uh, Mm -hmm. for rep um, on a Medicare for All platform and won. Yay! So we got one (laughs) down, four to go. Um, But this is such a great, you know, uh, the the municipal resolution is such a great tactic because you can start building more support in the district, uh, which you're going to need to move reps who Mm -hmm. are basically in health insurance territory. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And it's just a great way to rally people around, you know, a, a smaller win that can bring more people into the movement and go on to score bigger wins.
0: Yeah, I think this is something that we hear a lot from our activists. They're like... I went. I talked to my Congress member. Congress. I asked them to support Medicare for all, and they didn't do anything. <laughs> or you know, I, I've talked to them two or three times, and people start to feel hopeless. Mm-hmm. Um, but when that happens, it means you need to build more power in in the districts to actually move yes. them. Um, so this is a great way to start. Like. It's like, well, if you didn't get your rep on, try getting city councils and boards of aldermen to pass resolutions in this members of Congress district, um, start getting, you know, uh, nonprofit organizations to sign on, start getting unions to sign on and you start building up, you know, a case for yourself and some leverage over the mm-hmm. legislator. Um, so I think we're going to close by giving a shout out to the national Medicare for all resolutions campaign, mm-hmm. uh, which this was a part of. And, uh, this is run by our good friends at public citizen. Um, and they have this huge massive website with all the tools you will ever need to pass, uh, to introduce a resolution in your city or town to get it passed. And they will give you like intensive one-on-one staff support, which is great. So if you're interested in that as a, Possible tactic where you live, go to the Medicare for All Resolutions webpage. That's Medicare, the number four, allresolutions.org, and there'll be a sign-up page right there, and you can see sample resolutions that have been passed all over the country and sort of become a part of this uh, campaign as well. So next week, Stephanie will be off in... Denmark, Copenhagen, Uh, Denmark. Yes, the heart of communism. I mean, Medicare (laughs) for all.
1: (laughs) And really good bread.
0: Yes. So um, I will see if I can pull together uh, a podcast on my own. Maybe I'll bring in a guest. Um, But there's a possibility we might miss next week and be back two weeks from now. Keep up the fight between now and then.